Good, the bad, and the nerdy movie podcast. I'm your host, Tom, and it is the uh, 12 days of Star Wars, and on the sixth day of Star Wars, Darth Maul gave to me a lot of protocol droids whining. I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah, that that, that happened. That happened. Yes. Do, do you work these out in advance, or are they entirely Mad Libs, Tom? Half and half. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Folks, uh, today we're doing the original, the classic Star Wars, or Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, or A New Hope, depending on your uh, nomenclature. Nomenclature? High clature. Uh, I'm part hillbilly. That's the best I can do. <laughs> So uh, I I have to utterly break things right now just for, to put in my one minute anecdote or less. The one minute anecdote is, as you guys know, uh, my mother, uh, my retired mother, she's seventy four, lives with me, and therefore when I'm conducting some of the research for these shows, i.e., watching, <laughs> watching movies, um, uh, she's aware of what I'm doing and and hears about the topics, uh, and she had this to say about the prequel trilogy. Uh, she said, "quote That actor." The one who plays young Darth Vader, and I said Hayden Christensen. She says, "Yes, him. I'd let him put his slippers under my bed any night." <laughs> that's amazing. So that's my one-minute intro. That really isn't for this show, but it just happened. <laughs> um, and I'd like you all to imagine the look on my face. I, 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 I'm surprised your face didn't melt. Oh, uh, that's uh that's a thing that is. Oh, I'm, you can't see it, but I'm literally crying here from laughing. So there we go. I'm sorry, Tom. Uh, please, let's get on with our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, this one's probably the easiest to talk about in that we don't really have to complain a lot about. Uh, it is definitely a good movie. It is the class. It is, you know, one of the greatest movies of all time, according to most people. It's the movie that changed Hollywood. It is, you know, Star Wars. It is. The, the, it launched a thousand fandoms. Let's give credit where credit is due. It was one of the films that launched the summer blockbuster as a cultural phenomenon. Uh, uh, it was, however, the one that really blew the barn doors off. Uh, Jaws being the first summer blockbuster that did pretty well. And uh, this movie completely blew it out of the water <laughs> in every possible sense. Oh, yeah. You know, double the amount of money uh, Jaws made at the box office, and I think something we should point out. You know, we talked. To, Will and I talked to this before on another podcast. You know, the big sci-fi hit of the year before was, of course, Logan's Run. So then a year later, we get we go from Logan's Run special effects to Star Wars special effects. Talk about a massive leap. Well, yeah, what's interesting no, uh, is the budget on Star Wars. <laughs> It was only $11 million for the original uh, Star Wars movie. And that's in the same ballpark as Logan's run. And just, they do not look the same. No, they don't. Well, I mean, this was a sea change in practical effects and the priority of practical effects. And frankly, the work they paid was well below what the market rate would become for such practical effects. So there are techniques here uh, that really only come forward because of this and become advanced um, 
I mean, don't get me wrong, primitive versions of this stuff, I understand, existed prior. But when you put it all together, there's a degree to which Star Wars was almost a, like a thesis. It was a project made by recently graduated students in large numbers, actually, if you look at some yeah. of the people and where they were in their career. And sometimes when you do that, you get garbage. And sometimes when you do that, you get advancement, true actual advancement of the craft, because there is that, uh, you know, the, the space of beginner's luck or the space of uh, innovation in a lot of things is at the early stage of career. It's when you are still not yet set in your ways, uh, like poor Will and I are now. Oh, great. And I think something else you point out, Lucas was an interesting point of his career. He'd only made two films, THX 1138, which, you know, has its uh, praises and, you know, detractors. And then American Graffiti, which was, believe it or not, one of the top grossing films of the 70s. And, uh, you know, I've done a separate podcast talking about how great that film is. And the kind of, uh, you know, another case where he had a low budget and was able to get a lot out of nothing. And I think, you know, his demonstration of how successful we can make that movie get, you know, was able to get Star Wars finance because uh, it was clearly a case for if he hadn't had a, a real big hit on his name i don't think a lot of people would have signed off on this film mm -hmm. well lucas is if nothing else he is absolutely a touchstone for a certain kind of boomer um american graffiti in the 70s 50s nostalgia was uh, was a driving force of the universe and then further the nostalgia for the serial films I don't think you could have done this later. If somebody had come along in the 80s or 90s and done it, when there's less, when the, when the boomers were 40s and 50s, as opposed to 30s, still movie going, but maybe with young children, this is the sweet spot for speaking to his generation as well. Agreed. There's so much in timing here. I mean, just this movie just happened to splash down in the exact proper place it was well crafted and i think a lot of the reason it was well crafted was because of the constraints put on it i am a big advocate that if you tell someone go do something creative you're gonna get back nothing great but if you say go do this specific thing but do it creatively you are going to get a much wider variety of interesting things to come back to you putting restraints around a creative process or and limitations even things you have to overcome really can generate some amazing art and this is probably one of the epitomes of pop art uh this is certainly not citizen kane but uh that's okay it doesn't have to be citizen kane no but its impact is just as important as this absolutely i, I agree and you know we should point out he cast it very well. I can't think of, I mean, I've read of some of the other alternate casting choices, you know, Christopher Walken for Han Solo, Kurt Russell <laughs> for Han Solo, Robert England for uh, Luke Skywalker. You know, there's some interesting Robert England is Luke Skywalker. Who boy, that would have been a movie. Uh, yeah. Kurt Russell could have done a poor imitate. Like, I, I mean, maybe he would have found something in it. I've never seen it. Like, he is a Han Solo type. He's just not as good at it. <laughs> well, he's you know, he's the, Jack Barton, right? <laughs> like, right. you have big trouble in little Tatooine or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, what I feel is he would have probably either slapsticked it too much or... Because that's the key thing with Harrison Ford's performance is it is quips, it is jokes, <laughs> but there is deadly serious intent there that is not something that you can 
always easily like that 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 range is not always there jack barton is a farce character always and ever uh han solo is not correct and so just as a quick aside and i'm going to make this a real five minute thing this is not me gonna completely go off on a tangent <laughs> like i've ever done that before um anyway my point is, so we are, I'm of course speaking of the original 1977 release and not the special edition that was released later. Um, I'm not a big fan of the special edition. It's fine. Like it's a great movie because it's still Star Wars. It's still great. I do think that this is a bit too much. Uh, it, it's a bit too much Lucas trying to go back and, and, you know, sand it down a little too much and he accidentally sands a hole in it sometimes. <laughs> um, and that's really all I want to say about that is that I did prefer the theatrical releases to the uh, special editions. Even when the special editions came out and we saw them in theaters, I was like, uh, they could have maybe not done those things. And some of the, the sound was good. I mean, that, I, I always say the advantage of the updates was the sound quality got better. The special effects sounded better. But I will agree that the additions they put in were right. overkill at times. And of course, controversial for one specific moment but we're not going to go down that far i mean some of it was fine like adding additional laser blasts in the laser blasting sections sure that's fine the little ring that blows up around the death star when it blows up uh spoilers uh (laughs) you know those sorts of additions do not bother me uh make you know you know making the the shots of the ships look a little nicer is fine i mean if you wanted to go down the rabbit hole of it like that little ring doesn't do anything I get that he is not happy with the original sort of firework explosion, but what you do with that if you're going to redo the thing is, since you realize that shot underwhelmed, a distance shot of a little balloon Death Star popping doesn't help anybody. So what you do is you tighten the shot, you go like to the ass end of the Millennium Falcon and the X-Wing getting out of there, and have them being licked with flames. That's what you do if you want to reestablish the explosion as a thing in the movie rather than as a, a little bitty fart. But I get it. Uh, I just think that ring was a bad choice. So there are, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, there's choices that he made, individual ones, where it's yes, no, maybe, don't um, kind of game that could be played. But on the whole, I understand why he wanted to do it. It wasn't all bad. Uh, but it wasn't necessary, and I would absolutely recommend just get the original version so that you're not getting into a big 25-year argument over who shot first. Correct, and I uh, agree with Bruce 100%, and I think that's kind of where we need to leave it. Exactly. I, I mean, that's, you know, Disney will eventually decide, hey, let's just go ahead and put the other one out because we'll know somebody will want to see it or buy it. So yeah, it's, I'll be first in line yeah, to buy that- it. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's going to it people will line up um assuming they can remaster it well uh the people will line up for a 4K version of the original screening. Yeah, I mean that's the so I mean it's it's a case it'll happen eventually. It's all about, you know, uh, the search for more money. But uh I I think we should also point out um one of the things I think we should really praise to is they do a really good job of kind of making RGD2 and C3PO sort of the leads for most of the movie when you think about their positioning certainly the first third of the movie is the c-3po and r2d2 show and yeah no it, it, they, they are the narrative consistency they're who you're following absolutely uh, i mean it sort of it 
breaks together when they all get on the Millennium Falcon, and then it, then it switches to more of the ensemble. But you have at the beginning, you have these two fairly comedic characters. Let's break it down. They're both hilarious, based on characters from the Hidden Fortress, uh, which was another fantastic movie that heavily influenced this. Um, yeah, Kurosawa, genius uh, is a word I don't like to throw around too much when it comes to movies, but I think I got to give this one to him. Um, you follow these characters, and they introduce all the important characters in a very fleeting kind of way. And that's honestly brilliant because it lets your mind fill in the details, and it keeps you on this lightning fast pace. The editing in this film is superb, and I think that is one of the things that should be studied in film school if it's not already. Uh, the editing is so good in this. And the use of the soundtrack, um, those are the two things that I look at when I'm doing a little research uh, and like what are the things that get really discussed uh, apart from the visual effects. Editing and soundtrack are, are actually classes, Will, you would be happy to know. I know they're classes, uh, the fact but this should be an example shown in one of those classes. I'm sure it is. No, no, I meant, I meant this is a topic. Like, no, 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 Ed, Will, there's entire classes around this movie. Wow, okay. That I did not know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, now, oh, yeah. I'm, uh, it's a thing. <laughs> what I was going to say, though, is I'm kind of an aficionado of 70s films um, in general. Like, I will watch me some Serpico or uh, other other such you know, thrillers, The French Connection. Um, and I like those films. One, the 70s was a very different time. Uh, it's like the last, like the 80s is still on a thread to us now. The 70s is the one where there's still a little bit of a disconnect. Um, many of the things like the cultural turn in the 80s did for films was they all go faster. They all have shorter run times. Uh, there's no longer the traditional three-act structure, which Star Wars A New Hope absolutely has. Um, and even though the pace of the cuts and the edits in the movie is 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 short and quick and, and very active. It is not afraid to linger in exposition. It is not afraid to have, you know, a little bit of detective work in the desert because a droid ran away um, and let that scene and let those scenes and what are sand people and what are Jawas and Tatooine played out in a way that in that no other planet played out subsequently in the other prequel trilogy or uh, god help you do you even know the names of any of the planets in the the, the final three yes do you know the there name is of one, one planet, planet that stands out in the final three uh it's jakku because they do the exact same thing in that movie that they do in this movie which is right. sort of explored they just they do it faster and it may but it's still bargain tattooing you mean it's not even bargain basement it's how can I say this? The biggest flaw in that film is that it mirrors this film too much. <laughs> right. Like, don't get me wrong. I will absolutely talk about this when we get to The Force Awakens, uh, which like, I think I is actually a very good film. I would have liked it better if they just bloody put it on Tatooine, though. Why the hell not? Why not just say Tatooine is kind of metaphysically important? Because they After wanted all, to have it be different and they wanted to have the scenes of all the wreckage and stuff. I mean, there's there's reasons that are dumb. Easily have put re they could have easily yeah. put wreckage on Tatooine. Well, well, uh, yeah, we'll save that for yeah, we're getting uh, But I guess I'm saying Tatooine gets explored in a way that even the next two films 
Dagobah sort of gets explored. Admittedly, there's no reason to go running around Dagobah, but or a little bit. Uh, and and and, uh, and, yeah. and and Endor, Endor kind, but you could already see the '80s closing in, and the fact that you just don't linger in a place like you have a story. You don't have three acts in the story that each have their own independent arc anymore. And whereas in this one, you still do. So it's like an, it while it sets off the modern summer blockbuster and the big adventure film and the, the trilogy and the franchise and all of these concepts, it still has its feet in 70s film. And that interests me when you watch it. There's just different. I wouldn't say pacing because that's referring to editing, but there's different script time, screen time differences. Uh, the cleaning the droid sequence is nice and relaxed. And doesn't doesn't rush to get you to the exposition at the end of it. Everything in this movie, however, serves a purpose. I would say that there's very little cinematic fat in this film. Even the the lingering scenes all drive the story, and not just in like exposition that it's like, oh, that's nice to know. No, it is actually important that you know that C-3PO has seen a lot of action. It is really important to know that R2D2 has a restraining bolt on him that's causing problems or that he's yeah, yeah. saying so. There is so much packed into this film that even the relaxed parts just have so much story crammed into them in just like little little asides. Right. Just a couple of phrases can evoke amazing things. I mean... And th that uh, is because the film, this film's script was pared down and it was the basically what lucas apparently had 600 pages and like i'm gonna have 12 movies and and all of this and the process by which and i and yeah, the process by which it was winnowed onto the screen was that every, he he essentially had five pages for everyone he could shoot and he was trying to make it into as rich and dense of a stew as possible and that is the gold spot for him not when he is just able to like burn film on an ad lib and ad as, you know run it out as long as he wants. He needed that constraint to reinforce your point. Well, I couldn't have said it better. And I think there's one other thing you gotta give credit to. It's not just George Lucas's script and direction. It's John Williams' score. I mean, he won the Oscar for a reason. Mm -hmm. Oh, the music really makes this film work just as almost better in a way. I've watch scenes without the score and you realize how much more important that score fixes like the tones at times. Well, the dialogue doesn't always uh, have the highest uh, amount of density in it compared to all the other things. Um, let's talk about the cantina scene real quick. Iconic. When you talk about going into a space bar with space people and space patrons, the first thing your mind immediately snaps to is the cantina and most obviously on Tatooine. There is no other more iconic space thing. And every other space bar type environment that we've seen from that point forward takes cues from that. 100%. Absolutely. And I think that's something we should point out. You know, they had multiple creatures. They didn't, they didn't like how that they had enough. Rick Baker added some more in post-production of just stuff he'd made for fun. And was like, Hey, Try these guys out. Try these guys out. And they, you know, the more they added, the more they realized it made the scene more exciting or more fun to watch. No, everything about that is good. Uh, it's you. It, it's not really the one scene either because they do use it a little bit. Like, I mean, they don't. It's all there, but it's sequentially. But they break it a little bit, especially if you put back in the droid hide and seek stuff. Um, so it's 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 a place. It's very well defined. 
And I think one other thing after we get off of um, Tatooine, once we're on uh, on the Death Star, just the way the, the sets are and the way Vader moves around there. One thing I think we should really point out, Vader has not that much screen time, but the times he's in, he dominates everything. It's fascinating how effective. And we should be pointing out, we're recording this only a few days after David Prowse. Yes, away. Uh, rest his uh, Dark Lord soul. Uh, the physical performance yeah, that it, man put on uh, should also be ranked as high as any other performance in this movie. Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, when he's cho- force choking someone, it's just a, a subtleness, but it's the way he's doing it, You realize this guy's terrifying. Except that he's also clearly enjoying himself. There is a, I'm enjoying choking you as you were there, undermining my faith, having fun with it. Uh, that, that whole scene is glorious. Just wonderful for all the characters, yeah. including uh, Grand Moff Tarkin. Another wonderful yeah. actor. <laughs> oh, Peter Cushing. Oh, you were just so good yeah. at everything you did. <laughs> both him and Alec Guinness, you could not have had better choices for those parts. Because they're those are both those classically British actors who you know, at times were in absolutely great films and by the 70s weren't really getting that well used. And now here they are, like the biggest movie of the 70s. Oh, yes. So let's talk about the lightsaber duel, because as much as we praise the lightsaber duels in the uh, in the prequel trilogy. And, you know, that is one of the best things in that those movies, one of the few things that are good in those movies and not even all of them are that good. Some of them are bad, but there's at least one in every in every one. Uh, But my point is there's only one lightsaber duel in this film. And it is the one that probably carries the most emotional weight uh, up to this point. I mean, it carries just – there's a lot going on in that scene besides two old men slamming sticks against each other. And the choreography is not great. And uh, let's just face it, time has moved forward and choreography has moved forward from those moments. But you don't really notice it. Like I, I, I even just watching it again recently, I was like – so caught up in the scene that I was like, oh yeah, I guess I should think about the choreography, but I didn't care because the emotional stakes were so high. It's the climax of act two to point out that this is definitely part of a three act structure. This is the climax point of act two is the lightsaber duel between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi and just the little looks and the little bits of body language and just everything conveyed there is so well done. And I must admit, I am super biased with this movie. This is a childhood nostalgia film for me. I love it. This is my absolute favorite of all of these films. Every single one of these films, this is my favorite. I know a lot of people like Empire better, but this one is the one that I love. This is my number one Star Wars film of all time, and I cannot say enough good things about it. Oh, great. And I think we should point out, just for the psychology, the more we watch, the more we realize, Obi-Wan's just stalling. He doesn't he knows he he wants to lose this fight. He's not even trying to make this a real fight. And you can almost tell Vader's sensing something's off. So when he gets his kill shot, it's almost like, really? That was sad. And then when he disappears, he's like, What? You can just tell Vader's been really yeah, no, been that... con. He has no idea what he's been, he knows he's been con, but he doesn't know what 
the what the con was and i'm i'm actually quite interested because you know at that point i don't think that was extraordinarily i mean uh, for all that lucas sometimes claims to have had the thousand year plan uh but like i i kind of want to know what the actors were told to do there because it works it even works like that is the part of this movie that works the best with the prequels. It is the part that actually sells all the weird stuff that will come in the later movies about being a force ghost and that they're not even really aware of the concept. And what is this all about? And, and, and the fact is, is that there's possibly no way that was all really gelled anywhere. Uh, and the actors yet, it just works. So I, I am uh, astonished at that part not being as bad as, say, <laughs> Obi-Wan's first conversations with Luke and the bullshit he now, you know, retcon throws at him in those meetings. <laughs> From a certain point of view. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that hedge was All in right, well... there. <laughs> oh, I mean... Okay, I think the last thing we should cover, though, is really the final battle against, you know, the... Ra- the trench battle and everything. I mean, the the dog fighting uh, alone is just perfect. I think for just the editing, the way the effects are, you you believe you recognize all these guys. You know, hey, there's Porkins. Hey, there's Wedge. You know, these guys barely are on screen, but you remember them. I mean, it's that it's the you know stay on target. You know, those the way it's worked, the way it's paced, the way it's shot, everything. You just remember always remember the the runs you know the the whole battle well, so memorable compared to some of the others well here's my reasoning why this is memorable is because the stakes are incredibly clear and obvious <laughs> and you are always kept on that timer of if this doesn't happen by this time everyone fucking dies and the movie is over <laughs> um the yeah. the stakes so are very most... clear there is no it is, absolute yeah, it no is ambiguity crystal. That 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 could not be more right. That's that's entirely the difference between this and what might have been a really nice shot in uh, in um, episode one, where where I don't know, Whoopi Darth Vader running around and flying and through things. Like it's not at all clear what the hell will happen bad to Naboo if they lose this battle. You know, there's no there's why right. is why are even? they doing this? So yeah. no, it, it is absolutely the stakes, the timing, and the sequencing. Um, it doesn't hurt that they put people in cockpits, by the way. I think that really works. Like, I absolutely see that all of them were... were, And they probably just played back the other people to simulate radio. Because the pilots interact with each other in this in a way that feels like pilots in a World War I movie, where the, they're all over-enunciating for clarity. Uh, they're all trying, as opposed to the banter in the cockpits between uh, Obi Wan and Anakin in the late in the earlier prequel later movies, whichever way you would call it. It's like they're standing next to each other. There is no sense of that. Like there isn't radio distortion, like there was in this one. Right. Um. And and I don't like that at all. I I absolutely disliked that. Uh. I I think the clipped terse some distortion in the communications and the language that fighter pilots use because you use that kind of language when you're talking over a radio transmission that could easily get interrupted um yeah again uh, clearly a lot of world war ii movie influence here battle of britain I'm, I'm told is the one that lucas liked the most yeah battle of britain also if you've ever seen any of the the howard hughes uh wild angels film that's the other one uh, so uh, we have time to talk about one more thing that i completely forgot to mention at the beginning of this that opening sequence 
Go ahead. The, oh yeah. Not the not the crawl. The crawl's crawl? fine because it evokes the serials. But the opening sequence of the shot pans down from a long, long ago, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and then you see this planet. And this spaceship flies by, and you see a few laser blasts go by, and it's fine. And then this gigantic, huge wedge of a ship just <laughs> rumbles into the shot. And it is and it, it tells you everything you need to know about what this movie is about in those few seconds. You've got a little underdog guy and a big bully guy, and they're just bearing down on him and going to beat the shit out of him with a stick. It's so good. <laughs> uh, the Star Destroyer, the basic yes, Star Destroyer, is. is the best model in this um, it is absolutely the best spaceship model for conveying what it's meant to convey in a glance. Oh, agreed. I, the perspective, the idea, this is how ridiculously over, uh, just over, you know, I guess the best way to describe it is like the, the rebellion is really so small compared to what the empire is doing. So I think that's the, we get that in the very beginning. I, and the fact that, once again, this is what defeats them is it's a small group versus the big group because the big group's so big, they don't even notice they got a, a, a hole that's easy to blow up. You shoot one little I mean, missile down and they're dead. I'm it's just surprised I didn't it's call the torpedoes black arrows, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. All right, guys. Well, do you have any final thoughts on the, as Will says, the best Star Wars movie? I would say it's definitely the one in the top three best Star Wars movies. Yes, um, <laughs> but go ahead, Bruce. After you. No, no. Uh, well, actually, I've just got the weird one. Um, I think it goes without saying if you haven't seen this um, and you have any interest in anything that would be an adventure film or a sci-fi film, go. Uh, so that, you know, the recommendation is there. This is good even if you are not nerdy. Uh, the next one on this, though, is... The soundtrack. Get a copy. Honestly, this is, it's one of those things with the orchestral score here. It's, it's not music you're going to listen to every day because it's very much serving the purpose, but it's worth a listen without the movie. It's that good. In fact, it's better. Like it gives you even more perspective on it because they do cut things short to fit scenes. Absolutely. I, I mean, the soundtrack is one of the best-selling musical scores of all I time. I bought a copy, I'm just saying. Pointed out. Uh, so good. Yeah. I may or may not have it on <laughs> vinyl. Nice. Vinyl. Uh, my only thought is, I think, to echo Bruce, go see this movie. It's my favorite. I love it so much, and I'm sorry, but now I have to go get some power converters at Tashi Station. <laughs> Folks, this has been the Good, the Bad, and the Nerdy Movie Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this discussion of Star Wars, A New Hope. Uh, if you have more comments, please hit us up on our Facebook group and our Twitter account. Uh, of course, our next day, we'll be covering the next one. That will be Empire Strikes Back. So we'll be getting that in a little bit and uh, uh, discussing why uh, you know Luke just can't land a plane. <laughs> All right. 